Why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Do you ever find yourself asking those types of questions? Do you ever find yourself scrolling through the newsfeed on your smartphone device? Or flipping through the channels during the evening news and asking yourself, why? What good can come of this tragedy? Lord, if you're in control of everything, why did you allow this to happen to that person, to that family, to that church, to that community, to that country? God, why did you bring this particular trial into my life? Whether you're a Christian or you're agnostic or you're not sure what you believe about the Bible or good and evil and how this all squares away with your individual life and mine, uh, every single human being on this planet, regardless of where you live, has a perspective. It's a limited perspective. It's a fallible perspective. But we all have one. We all have feelings. We all have thoughts. We have unique life experiences that we bring to the table that shapes what we see. And it shapes how we perceive good and bad. What we believe is fair and what we believe is unfair. We all have life experiences, both pleasurable and painful ones that sooner or later draw out of our hearts that deeply personal and painfully perplexing question of why. And it's in those bewildering why moments in life. It's in those bitter and dark providences that just don't seem to make much sense to us, at least from our immediate perspective where many of us actually find more common ground with one another than we realize. For example, you and I might be living our life, minding our business, even trying to be a good person, you know, an upright U.S. citizen, a church-going Christ follower that means well and seeks to do good to others. But then all of a sudden, our lives abruptly change. In a matter of seconds, we can go from living an ordinary kind of life, or maybe even better, a life where things basically go how we want them to go most of the time. But then almost like a lightning bolt that strikes in the midst of a clear blue sky, we get struck with adversity. We get blindsided by disappointment. It's like we run into a wall, a really high and thick and hard wall that stops us in our tracks and brings us to our knees. So whether it's in the past or maybe it's going on right now in your life, have you had any of these following things happen in your life lately? Or maybe in someone else's life that you care about? A diagnosis of a terminal cancer 
or some other aggressive disease. A medical malpractice that has caused further problems with someone's health. A child with a birth defect. A miscarriage. A spouse that's deserted you. A spouse that has committed adultery against you. A dying business. A destructive government. A deadly tornado. A deadly terrorist attack. Perhaps you were used or abused by someone you thought you could trust. Perhaps you were lied to and lie about behind your back and now your reputation has been wrongly soiled. Maybe you were served papers to enter a heated lawsuit in court by someone motivated with greed and bitterness in their hearts towards you. Maybe you've had an unshakable bout with a dark cloud of depression lately. A paralyzing anxiety attack right before a big decision you had to make. A paranoia, a fear that grabs you in the chest in the watches of the night. A lurking loneliness that leaves you feeling trapped, suffocating with despair. Well, Friends, here we are in church, so of all places, you ought to be honest amongst God's people under God's word. How's your family doing? Maybe here on Easter Sunday, thinking about the resurrection, you're deep down praying, God, would you resurrect my family? Would you bring dead things that have been destroyed by sin and bring it to life in my family? Or perhaps there's been sabotage, ingratitude, envy, and whisper campaigns that have sent waves of disruption throughout your church. It might even just be the reality of an aging body that just keeps breaking down. You're not as strong as you used to be. It's keeping you from doing the things you want to do. An aging body that makes you live life on a daily basis really hard for you and really hard for those who are trying to care for you. But friends, if you have found yourself in any of those things, or they might be in the days ahead, I wonder if any of us have ever cried out to God and said things like this. God, I didn't sign up for this. If you love me, why is life so hard right now? I thought you opened a door for me, but the ceiling fell on me once I walked through that door. I thought this was the person you wanted me to marry. I thought this was the job you wanted me to have. I thought this was the church you wanted me to join. I thought you would give me a child like I always had dreamed of. I thought you had good plans for me. So why are these bad things happening to me? Why? Why do bad things happen to good people? God, why did you bring this particular trial into my life? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. We're going to be looking at specifically verses 32 to 52. If you're using one of the chair or pew Bibles, it's an inside joke for those who are members here. You can find that on page 497. Mark 14. This is your first time with us. We're currently in a study over the last two years in the Gospel of Mark. If you'd like to catch up on sermons that we've 
walk through. There's been about 40 or so in the Gospel of Mark. You can get online and listen to them on our church podcast. We left last time together in the Gospel of Mark in the life of Jesus on Thursday of Christ's Passion Week, which is the final week of our Lord's life on earth. It was late in the evening, and Jesus had gathered his disciples to partake of the annual Jewish feast that thousands and perhaps millions of people had flocked to in Jerusalem. Uh, That feast, as you know from maybe being familiar with the Bible, or if you look down in Mark 14, it's the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was during this feast, secluded in a private, prearranged upper room, where Jesus would wash his disciples' feet, where he would teach about the high call and the high cost of discipleship, along with the promises of God's Spirit living in his people, even after he was gone. And it was there where Jesus would transform that infamous Jewish feast into a feast about himself. Jesus, as the true and final Passover lamb, would take the bread and cup and use these as visible sermons to speak about his upcoming death, a death that would secure the promises of the new covenant, the bread pointing to his body, the fruit of the vine and the cup pointing to the blood that would be shed on the cross for the forgiveness of his people's sins. After the supper concludes, Judas has been revealed as a satanically influenced counterfeit disciple scheming with the enemy to betray Jesus. But Jesus isn't taken off guard. He knew beforehand it would happen. And after a hymn is sung at the Mount of Olives, Peter, along with the other ten disciples, emphatically declare that they would never deny Christ. They would never be ashamed of him. They would never forsake him. They would never drop the ball of bearing witness for him. But Jesus told them that once the shepherd would be struck, the sheep would be scattered. And here again, Jesus isn't taken off guard. He knew beforehand it would happen. So with Judas having left the group to officially join up with the dark side, And with the disciples overestimating their spiritual maturity and underestimating sin's ability to deceive them, what does our Lord do next? Look with me in verse 32, Mark 14, starting in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's word. Here in verse 32, we see what has been true of Jesus since the very beginning. Jesus is focused and determined. He's not aimless. He's not wasting time. He's not seeking anyone's advice. He's not allowing anyone to sidetrack him from the mission that was on his mind. Jesus knew exactly where he needed to be next in order to do the will of God. Mark says, you see there in verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. So if you've got your worship guide, it looks like this. If you want to pull that out and turn to page 10. Turn to page 10. This is just a basic map that outlines where the Garden of Gethsemane is located in connection with Jerusalem. In case you're still looking or your eyesight is a little bad, it's in the top right-hand corner. If you're a child and you want to stay on board here, you can circle it, and then you can draw your stick figures of me that you show me after the service at the bottom. Gethsemane was located east of the Kidron Brook in the Kidron Valley at the foot of the Mount of Olives. As you may recall from Mark chapter 13, Jesus had given that long discourse about the upcoming destruction that would happen in Jerusalem in AD 70, as well as teaching about his second coming. And that teaching took place, as we know, Jesus said, or Mark says about Jesus in Mark 13, 3, he sat on the Mount of Olives. And of course, just a few verses before this section, Uh, We were recently watching them at the Mount of Olives as they concluded their evening by singing a hymn together. Mark 14, verse 26. Uh, The word Gethsemane means an oil or olive press or olive vat. 
The place was an enclosed plot or a state where a garden or orchard was located. It was at the foot of the Mount of Olives, about three-fourths of a mile from the eastern walls of Jerusalem. The Garden of Gethsemane was not an unfamiliar place for Jesus or his disciples. The other gospel writers make that plain for us. For example, in Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, it says he came out and went as was his custom. Or John 18, verse 2 says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. But this time around, this familiar place, a much frequented place for Jesus and the disciples, Jesus didn't have the same familiar feelings that he probably had in years past. We can assume this was a place where Jesus had spent many hours just in fellowship with his disciples, enjoying their company, having a break from the hustling and bustling crowds that were looking for him. They probably used this place as a respite to eat, but also to pray together. And if it was a place to be used for prayer, it's exactly what Jesus does when he shows up again to pray. But Mark records that what was weighing on Jesus' mind. You ever seen someone that has a lot on their minds? They kind of wear their emotions on their face. I'm one of those people. I don't really have much of a poker face. Jesus is not trying to hide how he's doing. What has been weighing on his mind since those days and hours together with his disciples, even in those hours in the upper room just prior to Gethsemane, has become increasingly heavier in his soul. With every step, he gets closer to Gethsemane. Have you ever had one of those days where you've been trying to hold it all in for hours and hours, but you walk through the door of your house and you just collapse? You fall onto the bed. Maybe you fall straight to the floor. You're spent. Maybe you've been trying to be strong for others. After hearing of a difficult medical diagnosis the doctor gave you or gave someone you love. Maybe it's been a long week of planning a funeral and then actually having to have the funeral. And then when the family is come and gone and now the loss of your family member or friend finally hits you. Or maybe you've just been raising young kids caring for hurting people, discipling, comforting, teaching, serving, listening, and giving, bearing the cares of other people's pain and problems in their lives. And then suddenly a boulder of cares is now on your heart too. The weight of emotions from the day, maybe the whole week, perhaps even a whole year, eventually catch up with us. And then we just break down. Have you ever been there? That's what happens to Jesus in the garden. But on an infinitely greater and far heavier scale. For an infinitely greater reason as well. Look at me at verses 32 to 36. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. 
And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Among many things we see in this passage about our Lord, one thing should be very obvious to us. Jesus was a man of prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. And as followers of Jesus Christ, all of us have room to grow in our prayer life too. I would venture to say that a believer's prayer life is often the first thing Christians admit to struggling with early on in their Christian life. I know it was for me. And I found that even the most mature believers who've been walking with Jesus for years on end still realize they have room to grow to have a more consistent, disciplined, and richer prayer life with our Lord. But the best way to learn how to pray is to start praying and don't give up. Start praying and don't give up. And to help you along the way, one easy way to begin doing this is stare at the prayer life of Jesus. Another way to grow in your prayer life is pray with others who seem to have a richer prayer life than you do. Surround yourself with those who seem to be where you want to be, more disciplined, more consistent, more excited, more broken, more humble, more dependent in prayer. You can do that throughout the week in a one-to-one setting or in a small group of friends. You can even do that with us here on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. Uh, Here at CCBC, we spend extended time in prayer because we need more of God's wisdom and power, not less. When you and I study the prayer life of Jesus, we find that prayer was never an afterthought or a religious chore in his life. For Jesus, prayer was not just a spiritual habit around the dinner table or going through the motions even on the synagogue day. Rather, the entirety of his life and the patterns of his ministry were continually immersed in utter reliance upon his heavenly Father. In Mark's gospel alone, we've seen these brief glimpses of Jesus' prayer life. So what we're seeing here in Mark 14 is not just Jesus doing something that wasn't It was abnormal for him. Uh, Prayer has been a part of his life since we've been studying this book. Uh, Take, for example, Mark 1, 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Upon the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, we read in Mark 6, 41, in taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Uh, Mark 6.46 just flatly and plainly says, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Not to have introvert time, but to pray. And in Mark 9, the disciples utterly failed in their attempts to heal and deliver a boy who had epilepsy and a demonic spirit. As a pivotal teaching opportunity, Jesus reminds the disciples that we too need to be reminded of this morning in our own lives. The reminder that human strength and human wisdom cannot accomplish supernatural tasks. Human strength and human wisdom cannot accomplish supernatural tasks. 
Mark 9, 28 and 29, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Notice what Jesus says. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And then in Mark 11, notice how Jesus rebuked the Jewish Sanhedrin because of the way they defiled the Jewish temple. And notice how he reminded them of who the temple worship was ultimately for and for what purpose was that temple built? Jesus says, is it not written, my house, that is the temple, shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Though not mentioned specifically in Mark's gospel, we do see in the upper room discourse, in John chapters 13 to 17, where Jesus concludes those final intimate hours with his disciples, praying to his heavenly father. In fact, John 17, I would encourage you maybe to check it out later this afternoon. We read of the longest recorded prayer in scripture of our Lord talking to his heavenly father. And all of this, friends, is just prior to him entering Gethsemane. Now back to Mark 14. When Jesus enters the garden, he decides to leave behind the majority of his disciples at the entrance of the gates. In other words, guys, you got to stay out in the lobby. I'm only taking three. The inner three, sometimes theologians may call it. These were three of the four young men Jesus had called to be his disciples back in Mark 1. They were formerly fishermen by trade. These were the same young men that had the unbelievable privilege to be with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration to get a preview of his glory. Uh, Peter, James, and John, the latter being the sons of Zebedee. And as Jesus takes the lead, as he always does, walking with his three disciples into the garden, his soul begins to be greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 33 says, So much that an intense agony welled up inside of him that led to a deathly sorrow. Did you catch those words that Jesus uttered in verse 34? Look at verse 34. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. A few other reliable English translations put it this way. I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Or my soul is swallowed up in sorrow. Beloved, do not skip over those words. Do not skip past these sentences. We are beholding our mighty and precious Jesus overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with anxiety. Overwhelmed with sorrow. Overwhelmed with terror in his soul. Could you have imagined having followed him for three years and seen their precious and mighty Lord literally crack in front of them? I mean, some of you may have thought your dad growing up was strong and he was invincible. And then as you got older, you watched your dad literally die and age. No one is physically, humanly invincible. We all in this fallen world will eventually crack. 
but for our Lord who never sinned. Truly God, yet truly man. The Lord of glory in human flesh, we are told in Scripture, is overwhelmed. There's only a few times in all of the Gospels that we ever read of Jesus becoming greatly distressed and troubled. We read of this when Jesus got news that his friend Lazarus had died in John 11. We read a few other instances that really go along with the events going on right now through the Gospels. But nonetheless, Isaiah 53, a prophecy that would have been foretold many years previously of the suffering servant. He would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Friends, this man of sorrows that the Jewish people had been waiting and watching for is being lived out before the eyes of these three disciples. It's being described for us this morning before our eyes too, as we're staring at Mark 14. The man of sorrows has entered into that garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' soul is so overwhelmed that it was as if the waves of death were beginning to flood his thoughts. Like a ship at sea in the fiercest of storms, Jesus began to feel death. Smell death. Sense death. Already a preview in his mind, hearing himself die. For Jesus, what he knew would one day come, now was officially about to begin. His final hours on earth was creeping upon his soul second by second, moment by moment. Like quicksand, he knew what his death sentence was going to be like and when it would occur, and it left our Lord internally undone. In fact, his anxiety, sorrow, and fear were so intense that his physical body began to be affected. In Luke's gospel, Luke the physician records for us, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. A condition more commonly known as hematidrosis, a rare medical condition that causes one's sweat to contain blood. The sweat glands are surrounded by tiny blood vessels that can constrict and then dilate to the point of rupture, causing blood to effuse into the sweat glands. In other words, the intensity the agony inside Jesus quite literally was being poured out of the sweat glands of our Lord's body. And then in verse 35, it says he went a little further. He distances himself a little bit from the three. Luke's gospel says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. Jesus is so overcome by what he knew was coming, that he physically fell to the ground, sweating drops of blood. Jesus is emotionally spent. Jesus is physically exhausted. He is the definition of being depleted, humanly speaking. 
For us, we might call this one of those fetal position kind of prayer days where you hit the ground and call out to God and you don't know if you're going to get up. Matthew says he fell on his face with his face in the ground. Total and complete desperation on God kind of praying. Have you ever gotten that desperate on God before in prayer? I mean, I'm not talking about you had a semi-stressful day and you threw up a quick one to the Lord. I'm talking face on the ground, prostrate on the ground, sweat in agony and intensity and fear overtaking you to the point you do not say, God, you're all I need. No, God, you're all I have. Big difference. God is not one of many valuable, viable options. You want to know if you're truly relying upon the Lord? It's total abandonment of self and total reliance on our maker. But friends, given the unique context of Mark 14, there has never been a human being that has ever existed or will ever exist, even touch the gravity of what we see in this garden. Jesus collapses to the ground with inexplainable grief, weighing him down as sweat mixed with blood drops off his brow. But in the midst of intense agony and earnest prayers, Jesus, as a good disciple maker, gives instructions to his disciples. But as what happens oftentimes in the life of Jesus and in our lives too, Jesus gives clear instructions, but he has to repeat himself. Jesus tells his disciples not just once, not just twice, but up to three times to do one thing. You ever had one of those moments where someone said, I gave you one thing to do, and you blew it. Jesus gave his inner three one thing. In verse 32, he told the eight disciples who were at the gate, sit here while I pray. In verse 34 and 38, he told the inner three to remain here and watch and watch and pray. In sheer exhaustion and probably with a little frustration in his voice, he raises his voice to Peter in verse 37 for falling asleep on the job. And then Jesus admonishes all three of them in verses 40 and 41 for continuing to do the same. After repeated warnings and exposing them of their failures to obey him, Jesus then comes to a place of personal resolve. He knows it's time to leave. And it's time to face the men who had a most wanted target on his life. In verse 43 and following, we see the last meeting, the last interaction, the last face-to-face conversation with Jesus and Judas. In verse 43, we're told that the person leading the hundreds of Roman soldiers, along with key leaders from the Jewish Sanhedrin, is none other than Judas. As you know, Judas is one of the 12, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus who spent up to three intimate years with our Lord. Judas saw his miracles up close. Judas lived with Jesus, ate with Jesus, heard him teach, experienced his amazing love. Jesus 
just a few hours earlier, had taken the task of a lowly servant and washed the feet of Judas as if Jesus was the servant and Judas was the master. But here, Judas's true colors, they finally come out. He comes out the closet on the double life he had been living for quite some time. Friends, never forget this biblical truth that God gives us. Truth and time walk hand in hand. Truth and time walk hand in hand. If we live a double life, if we live in sin, in secret, without repentance, we will always reap the corrupted consequences of our sin. The proverbial word is, we reap what we, what is hidden in darkness, in God's timing and God's way, will be brought to the light. And for Judas, what were his true colors all along? What did truth and time end up revealing about Judas, who was one of the twelve? He was closer to Jesus than any pastor or deacon could have ever dreamed to have been. What did truth in time end up showing what fooled everyone except Jesus? It revealed his love for money and his hatred for Jesus. It revealed his love for the praise of men and his disinterest in the glory of God. His sin-deceived mind and his satanically-influenced heart in time led to commit the greatest act of friendship betrayal in human history. The Son of Man was portrayed into the hands of filthy sinners. And one pair of those filthy hands was the pair of hands from one of Jesus' own beloved disciples. In fact, to add to the level of deception and hypocrisy, Judas leads out with his new team, his new friends, his new family, who he wants to take Jesus out now. Judas leads out this devilish scheme, showing everyone in the dark hours of that Thursday night which one Jesus is with a kiss. a non-romantic but nonetheless affectionate kiss on the cheek like a close friend would give another friend he hasn't seen in years. He even calls out to Jesus, Rabbi, making everyone think this is a student to teach a relationship. This was a term Judas would have used for many years previously in his life and ministry within that tight-knit group. But this time it wasn't because Jesus had a sincere question for Jesus. It wasn't because Judas wanted to do something kind for Jesus. This time it was Judas trying to trap and have Jesus arrested. To see Jesus seized and crucified. Friends, he did all of this. Think about how ridiculous sin is. He did all of this for 30 years pieces of silver. 
a half a year's salary maybe, and some pats on the back and hand claps from the religious community that envied and hated Jesus. Sin never makes sense, does it? Seems so sweet in the moment, but in retrospect, it is ridiculous to sin against a good God who's only been good to you. After a brief altercation between Peter and the servant of the high priest, due to some intense emotions in the air, verse 47 refers to, Jesus raises some eyebrows with a bold question and a bold statement. Look with me at Mark 14, verses 48 and 49. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is where you got to start putting on your thinking caps if you haven't put them on yet. Of all things we hear our Lord say in this intense, emotional, and horrific act of betrayal in the wee hours of the night, there is absolutely no shred of evidence that Jesus is afraid of these men. Men who were armed with weapons at that. John's gospel said it was a cohort, a band of soldiers, which means it could have been up to 600 Roman soldiers armed with them at night. Think carefully, friends. These men have come out under the leadership of the Jewish Sanhedrin and Judas, armed with weapons as if they're about to fight an army. Jesus looks hundreds of men in the eye, including the one who would betray him. In essence, he does this, and he says this. You were an eyeshot of me for days as I was teaching boldly and openly in the temple. I stood toe-to-toe with the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. I flipped tables in front of you. I ran people out of the temple because of you. And I took to task with parables, scripture exposition, silence, and rebuke. You saw me day by day. You heard me day by day. And you did nothing to me. You did not even as such lay a finger on me. But then Jesus ties the bow with this bold statement of why they were not able to arrest him until that night. He says concisely with an unwavering confidence, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. In other words, this is Jesus saying, you can only lay a finger on me because God Almighty has given you permission to do so. The scriptures, the God-breathed sacred writings, which you have in your hands, Jewish Sanhedrin, are being fulfilled in your eyes tonight. Jesus' words here are a culmination of his previous words in Mark's gospel. In just a few short words, this is also a rebuke in front of all these men who want to have him killed. Friends, when he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled, let me remind you what he meant by that. Jesus was basically saying this, I am the true and holy temple of the living God, a temple made without hands. I'm the true and final Passover lamb of Exodus 12. I'm the son of man of Daniel 7. 
I'm the greater David whose friend has lifted a heel against him of Psalm 41. I'm David's son, yet David's Lord of Psalm 110. I'm the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Jesus was saying this, listen up, gentlemen. These scriptures are being fulfilled because the scriptures testify about me. And your unjust treatment of me is all according to my Father's plan. Beloved, don't miss this power-packed statement. Even his own weary, tired, faithless, and fickle disciples, just like we are with our relationship with Jesus, they too are all acting as fully responsible moral creatures under the sovereign plan, sovereign providence, and predestined purpose of God. Did you also notice those last few verses in our passage? Jesus' daunting words came true, didn't they? Look at me in Mark 14, verses 50 to 52. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, if I was going to be put in the Bible... Lord, could you give me, uh, give me a verse where I have some clothes on at least? Now, who is this naked, streaking disciple? Most people say it's Mark, the author of this gospel. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm not entirely sure. There that is. But what's most important and what is most daunting is what Jesus said what happened came true. The all who left Jesus and fled that day is the same all who said they would never deny him. Mark 14, verse 31, but he, Peter, said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all, pos, said the same. They all professed they would always stick close to Jesus. And in just a matter of a few hours, they all chose to flee and abandon Jesus. Friends, one of the slippery slopes that lead to some of the most grotesque sins is the fear of man. They denied our Lord because men were really big in their minds and God had become really small. The fear of man lays a snare, Proverbs 29, 25, but whoever trusts, whoever fears the Lord is safe. Friends, right now, resolve. Honestly confess to the Lord, people in your life that you're prone to be a people pleaser to, you fear more than God, specifically by name and why you fear them, and say, God, would you give me a proper understanding that they're a creature, not the creator, and I'm going to fear you no matter the cost. Pray that we would get bigger thoughts bigger hearts and bended knees before our big God. That's the fear of God, which leads to wisdom and understanding. But these men, in their zeal, God was really small in that moment. And they left Jesus all alone in the hour of darkness in the hands of sinners. Brothers and sisters, these final words of Jesus let the scriptures be fulfilled, that's a jaw-dropping statement. This should astound us. 
This should leave us in awe of Jesus Christ. And it should humble us of anything we thought was good about us. Friends, the question of this passage I've been waiting to the end is this. Why was Jesus distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Why was his soul deeply troubled even to the point of death? Look back with me in Mark 14, 35 and 36. If you've got your Bibles open, please focus there. Mark 14, 35 and 36. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was not afraid of Satan in Mark chapter 1. Jesus was not afraid of an F5 tornado or storm at sea in Mark 4. Jesus wasn't afraid of a man possessed with a legion of demons in Mark chapter 5. Jesus wasn't afraid of the Jewish Sanhedrin that wanted him dead, nor was he afraid of Roman soldiers who had weapons that night. Jesus wasn't afraid of his disciples abandoning him. Jesus wasn't afraid of Judas betraying him. Jesus, friends, wasn't even afraid of death itself. He had already raised dead people to life. Then what was Jesus afraid of? What was Jesus' soul filled with the ways of death for? What hour did he wish the Father would let bypass from his life? What was in the cup that he wanted his Father to remove from him? It was the fierce, just, eternal, righteous, wrathful, fury, anger, and indignation of God Almighty. The wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God that abides on everyone who has ever sinned. The wrath of God that will be poured out on every person that does not possess the perfect light of obedience that he requires. This is the wrath of God that flooded the earth in the book of Genesis. This is the wrath of God that destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the wrath of God that sent the plagues on the Egyptians in Exodus. This is the wrath of God that crushed the Canaanite settlements and the nations that waged war against Israel. This is the wrath of God that struck Nadab and Abihu dead for offering strange and unauthorized fire on the altar in Leviticus 10. This is the wrath of God that crushed the Assyrian and Babylonian armies forever off this planet. This is the wrath of God that is directed on every sinner that does not flee the wrath of God and cry out to his mercy before it's too late. In the garden, Christ pled with his heavenly father, Abba, Father, which was an intimate term of endearment. His father loved him and he loved his father. Nothing had ever separated them. Nothing had ever been in conflict with them. Only unity, only peace, only love. 
And before Jesus came to this earth, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God, one in essence, three in person, were in complete harmony and complete unity with one another. And together the Godhead determined to save a wretch, a people, for the Father's glory, to make a bride for his Son in which the Spirit would apply the work of grace to their hearts and keep them for all eternity, to seal them, to invite them into the love relationship between the triune God with his elect people. This is the story of redemption. We have been invited into, we have been brought up into, we have been swept into the love relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Not because of anything lovable about us, but because God in eternity past has set his love on a massive amount of people and make them lovable in their sight. Jesus knows what is going to be required of him. But make no mistake about it. Jesus was not forced or manipulated or coerced to go to Calvary. In his humanity, in his suffering, he was tempted like we are. Tempted to disobey God. Tempted to fear death, fear men, fear suffering, tempted to run and hide like all his disciples did. And yet Jesus stared fear in the face, the frightening, terrifying, and awful suffering that only one human being has ever faced at that magnitude in all of human history. Friends, Jesus asked the Father to remove the cup of his wrath towards sin because the everlasting punishment of hell And the full force of God's holy anger was about to be swallowed up in Jesus Christ on the cross. The father eternally loves his son. And he always will. But the one who drinks the cup would become the object of God's wrath. And yet, in the same prayers in the same moments of agony, in the same moments of emotional and physical exhaustion, Jesus utters these glorious words. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Do you understand those have got to be one of the most glorious things a sinner could ever hear? If Christ did not drink the cup, if Christ did not do the Father's will, then the only thing bad people like us deserve is to drink the cup of God's wrath. It's a misnomer question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Problem, there's only ever been one good that's ever lived. And his name is Jesus Christ. We get the gospel backwards if we start off with we are good and God is good. No, God is good and we are bad. Jesus is the only one good. He was tempted to sin, but yet he had no sinful flesh or desire in him. We needed a mediator. We needed an advocate. We needed someone to stand in the gap for us so that we can be in fellowship with God. 
Friends, instead of Jesus disobeying his father, he obeyed and submitted to his father. Friends, this is what love is. This is what true love is. Love is humbly submitting your life in obedience to God. Love is humbly submitting your life in obedience to God. If you're taking notes, here's just your main idea for the whole sermon. There is no hell left for those who are in Christ. Only love to be received and a heaven to be gained. There is no hell left for those who are in Christ. Only love to be received and a heaven to be gained. Friends, Christ obeyed the will of the Father for us. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we didn't have to. He took down the punishment we deserve so that we might drink from the cup of God's love forever. And friends, you know what love is in the life of us? Love is when we choose to live life with God, live life for God, and help others know God. Why would anyone love God and love others like that? 1 John 4.19 tells us we love because he first loved us. Husbands, this is the kind of love God has called every husband to show his bride. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives how? As Christ loved the church. Go to the garden. I don't want to love this woman. She's not deserving of my love. She annoys me. She nags me. She never meets up to my standard. Go to the garden and learn what love is, husbands. This is love, laying down your life for someone who does not deserve it. Christ did that for us. It doesn't matter how hard it is for you, it will never match the difficulty Christ bore for us. Kids and students, don't take your parents for granted. Though they have many flaws, your parents make sacrifices of love every week for you, even without you knowing it. Many sacrifices that you'll never realize until maybe you have kids one day. Be sure to thank your parents for the way they provide for you and sacrifice for you. Christians, this is the kind of love we're called to show one another who belong to the family of God. Members of CCBC, this is what is being shown in our lives right now. Let's pray that it continues. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Fellow elders, pastors, as a fellow elder with you, we've been given a charge from King Jesus to love Christ's church here at CCBC with this kind of love. Acts 20, 1 Peter 5, elders are called to serve with a willing and eager heart out of sincerity and sacrificial love. Friends, the stakes are high in gospel ministry. The battle is fierce in pastoral ministry. People's souls are at stake. D.A. Carson soberly reminds us, there is a heaven to gain and a hell to fear. And if you don't believe that, get out of ministry. To my non-Christian friend, there is a day coming where you will stand before the judgment seat of God. You will give an account of your life. Every thought, every word, every deed. Remember Judas, outwardly religious, inwardly a hypocrite. He didn't really love Jesus. 
his true colors came out. If you have a problem with being called a sinner, I want you to have a problem not with me, but with God's word. Open up to Romans chapter three, spend about five days there, and then we'll set up a lunch and we'll talk more about it. Wrestle with God first of how dark and depraved we really are. No, I'm a good, I'm a good person, Romans three. No, I'm really better than you think I am, Romans three. Then come back. When God gives you a good dose of humility, then we'll come back and talk about the gospel. Romans 3. Friends, the question is not whether or not we're good enough. The the question is, is will you see that Christ is the only good one for us? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One theologian said, those who reject God's righteousness become targets of his wrath. God put forward Jesus, his only son, on the cross to be the sacrifice for our sin. He freely offered himself as the mercy seat to give us total access to God and his love. By dying on that cross, he drank the cup of God's wrath and God's wrath was appeased in his blood. Three days later, God raised him from the dead, showing the world that the father accepted the son's sacrifice. Friends, do you want to know the heart behind the gospel message? Do you want to know the message that truly is the heartbeat behind Easter Sunday? Alistair Begg says it well. What will we have to say before the bar of God's judgment? Only one thing. Christ died in my place. That's the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if these things are true, why didn't Simon get it? Why didn't James and John get it? Why did they flee the scene? Why did they abandon their Lord if they said they loved him? Oh, welcome to Christianity. Welcome to the Christian life. We can praise God on Sunday and bomb it on Monday. Welcome to the already and not yet, to the work that's begun but not completed yet. Being a Christian is messy, but it's getting more beautiful as the day goes by. Look at the warning Jesus gives his disciples. Look at Mark 14, 38. I promise you we're almost there. Mark 14, 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Friends, until we reach glory, until we are made like Christ, we have a sinful flesh that is still capable of committing great sin. And our bodies are aging and dying. And like Peter and the disciples, they're just getting tired and sleepy. They made sinful choices and they were sleepy Christians. Put those two together, bad things happen. The flesh is too weak for the spiritual forces of evil. The flesh is too weak for us to flirt and play with sin. The flesh is too weak for us to trust us more than God. So how do we defeat the flesh? We remain watchful and pray as we hide God's word in our hearts and obey our Lord. Friends, just very clearly, don't treat sin lightly. As Brad read earlier in in Confess Sins, don't treat any sin as small or little. Let's treat sin the way God treats sin. How does God treat sin? He nailed his son to the cross. That's how much God hates it. In the Garden of Eden, Adam failed and the whole human race fell under condemnation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ prevailed and sinners now have access to God. Friends, we can only prevail over temptation when our eyes are on Christ and our knees are on the floor. Watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray, lest we enter into temptation. 
How do we trust God in times of suffering? We look to our Lord in that garden. We make a request in humility. Heal my body, remove this difficult thing out of my life. We can make that request known. And yet, whatever the Father's final word is, will be enough. Not my will, but your will be done. On November 3rd, 2020, Tim and Eileen Challies received the shocking news that their son Nick had died. A 20-year-old student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, he had been participating in a school activity with his fiancée, sister, and friends when he fell unconscious and collapsed to the ground. Neither students nor a passing doctor nor paramedics were able to revive him. His parents received the news at their home in Toronto and immediately departed for Louisville to be together as a family. While on the plane, Tim, an author and blogger, began to process his loss through writing. In his book, Seasons of Sorrow, Tim shares real-time reflections from the first year of grief through the seasons from fall to summer, introducing readers to what he describes the ministry of sorrow. Notice what Tim Challey said, quote, Nick's death has made us face mortality and human fragility in a whole new way. My children may as well be made of glass. I'm just so afraid that if providence directed I lose one, it may direct that I lose another. If it is determined I face this sorrow, why not many more? How then can I let go of such anxiety? How can I continue to live my life? The only antidote I know is this, deliberately submitting myself to the will of God for comfort is closely related to submission. As long as I fight the will of God, as long as I battle God's right to rule his world in his way, peace remains distant and furtive. But when I surrender, when I bow the knee, then peace flows like a river and attends my way. For when I do so, I remind myself that the will of God is inseparable from the character of God. I remind myself that the will of God is always good because God is always good. Hence, I pray a prayer of faith, not fatalism. Your will be done, not as I will, but as you will. Why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened one time, and that was Jesus. And he did that for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you as we meditate and stare at our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is our only comfort in suffering, and he is our only antidote for our sin. And so we pray that even this morning, that all who have ears to hear will run to Christ and what he's accomplished for us on the cross and in the empty tomb. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.